Jesus has eaten a meal with His disciples that was unlike any other meal. It was eaten the evening before the normal Passover meal, though this was still considered Passover uh, as a gathering with the disciples with all the other uh, elements of interpretation of the elements, a host, an upper room in Jerusalem. All of the signs are present that Jesus is eating with his disciples something climactic. But the reason it was the evening before is because the slaying of the lambs on Friday afternoon will be in the providence of God happening while Jesus is on the cross. He is the Passover lamb. And Jesus eats this meal and unlike any other Passover meal prior where there were interpretation of the elements and references to the exodus of old, Jesus begins surprisingly to speak of his body and his blood in referencing the bread and the cup. Speaking about not what happened long ago with an act of deliverance in the days of Moses, but an act of deliverance that was near. One that he would accomplish, a new covenant. It is this very evening where a series of other statements are made in addition to the interpretation of the bread and the cup. In verses 21 to 30, they engage in a dispute about who was the greatest in the kingdom. Who would be, if you will, the greatest among the disciples. And Jesus was helping them to see that after what he's just spoken, they're arguing about who is the greatest. There's a betrayer in their midst. Judas himself, at the beginning of Luke 22, has contracted an agreement to betray the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. And these disciples are not seeing all things clearly yet. They're haggling back and forth about who is the greatest among them. Given the gravity of Jesus' words, there couldn't be a more inappropriate time to be debating that question. In fact, what seems to be shown is the disciples are not fully prepared for what is coming. They have a sense of Jesus being the son of David and the Christ. They're willing to confess that. And they even feel quite confident, Peter representing probably a larger group of them, that we're going to be with you, Jesus. We're with you. We're sticking by you. And yet, because of the gravity of his words, the presence of a betrayer in their midst, and the fact that they're going to talk in worldly categories about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, and Jesus, redefining this, begins to speak of service and devotion and giving of oneself. He's about to demonstrate this as an example of love for sinners. He's about to give his own body and blood. He's about to accomplish redemption and do a finished work that fulfills all the previous Passover festivals. Jesus speaks now with words of warning. The disciples are not alert He told them earlier in Luke 21 in verse 34, watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with the cares of this life. In verse 36, stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength. We could think of the disciples as a group of people eating together with Jesus, enjoying fellowship with one another, yet not being wakeful in their lives. And one of the deep tragedies of their non-wakeful state and non-watchful state is in the words that Jesus is about to warn them of. 
and with. In verse 31, he mentions the name Simon. And we've heard this name before. He encountered Simon in Luke 5 when he called him to follow him. Simon is a fisherman. This is the one we know as Simon Peter or Cephas. All different names referring to the same disciple. But Jesus told Simon earlier, you will be called Peter, which means a rock. But Simon is not so solid in these verses and chapters that follow. He seems quite unstable, quite fickle, not very solid at all. He speaks more solid than he proves to be. Jesus refers to him by that name that was all the way back when the calling of Peter to follow him took place. And he calls him Simon. And not just once. Have you ever been talking with someone and found yourself saying their name more than once in a row? Simon, Simon. And I don't think it's because he couldn't get Simon's attention. Simon, Simon, Simon. Like he's speaking to you, to, you know, children in your home, perhaps. You're using names over and over again. Simon, Simon, listen to me. They're all at the table together. Simon, Simon is not the first time a name is repeated. Earlier in Luke 10, Jesus said, Martha, Martha. In Acts chapter 9, on the road to Damascus, he will say, Saul, Saul. There are occasions where a double name halts you because of what happens next. It's a moment where there might not have been clear-headed thinking. Focus is off. Something is distracting. And he says, Simon, Simon, as a way of pulling him in so that he can be prepared for what happens next. There's a tone of affection here. He loves Simon. Simon, Simon, Jesus cares for him. Simon, Simon, behold. Behold. And the next words are disturbing not only for Simon to hear, but for all the disciples to hear. And I think they're disturbing for us to read. Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Our English translations give us the word you twice here. Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. And then in verse 32, but I prayed for you. That your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. There's a lot of you and your going on. I want us to note something, though, that's not necessarily apparent in our translations. As helpful as they are, we can't always distinguish with the word you from the singular and the plural. You know, in in Texas, we grew up saying y'all all the time. I probably say this to you all the time, too. Y'all or you all. And if I, were to, if I were to insert that, a little South Texas paraphrase here, it would sound like this. Satan demanded to have you all. He demanded to have you all as a group. That he might sift you all like wheat. Simon being addressed as an individual there can sometimes make us think, well, the sifting was focused on Simon, but we know in the original language that's not true. Simon is addressed likely because he's a leader of the group. But the you in verse 31 is plural in both cases. And he's telling Simon what not only Simon needed to know about, but Simon's role as a kind of leader among the twelve, something they all needed to be aware of. Satan 
has demanded to have you, you disciples. And we know that Peter is not just the only focused um, disciple in the mind of uh, the devil. After all, look at what happened at the beginning of Luke 22. Satan's very influence is seen in the life of Judas. Shortly after this, disciples will flee in the Garden of Gethsemane. There is a sifting going on. And the disciples are not watchful, they're not wakeful, they're distracted, they're thinking on militaristic, triumphalistic tones that the Son of David might have carried for them. That notion of entering Jerusalem and establishing a kingdom, and they haven't felt and thought through and processed all that this is going to mean. Satan demanded to have you all, that he might sift you all like wheat. We've seen the work of the devil in the Gospel of Luke before. In Luke 4, there's temptations of Jesus. And of course, Jesus prevails over the tempter. We see that throughout the earthly ministry of Jesus, he encounters demonically possessed people. And he rebukes the devils throughout his ministry, commanding the demons to flee, and they do. But while Jesus has proved himself triumphant over the evil one, that's not necessarily been the case with those following Jesus. And here, they are given a sober warning that the devil demands to have them. Now, if if we think of the phrase, Satan demanded to have you, we might think, what would Satan want with them? And now, of course, the right and reasonable goal to assume is that what Satan would want to have them for is that he might undo them, disunite them, uh, corrupt them, destroy them. Tempt them and ensnare them with all things to either turn from Christ or ultimately oppose him. Satan demanded to have you and, I, and, and Jesus would be warning them of this because there's no good reason Satan would demand to have them. Think of the story of Job. We know that the work of the evil one going to and fro and throughout the earth in the book of Job would be for purposes and goals that are designed for the destruction of the faith of others. Job is a man of faith. And we know in Job 1 and in Job 2, Job experiences the work of the evil one against him. Job does not say the Lord is you know, failing to be sovereign or faithful over all things. He recognizes The wicked one who has come against him for sure. And by the end of the book of Job, we realize that the one who is triumphant over the evil one is God himself. God is the one who can subdue and God is the one who overcomes. Jesus is the word made flesh, God among sinners, triumphing over the evil one. But Peter is going to experience a testing or sifting. Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. I don't know if that seems like an odd metaphor to you. Sifting you like wheat. What would you do with wheat sifting it? If you've already separated wheat from chaff, what else is going on? Well, an ancient sieve would be something that you take and you put wheat in to separate the wheat through it so that anything else that remains, and maybe pebbles or other things that you wouldn't want with the wheat, would be separated from what's desirable. I think the takeaway is this. Satan demanded to have you all so that he might bring about separation. So to sift like wheat is to separate. 
And what I think he ultimately is seeking to do with all the disciples of Jesus, and this includes everyone hearing my voice this morning, is that he desires us to be separated from faithfulness unto Christ. Jesus is warning for the disciples of of him in that room and on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's Jesus' warning to all the disciples that the work of the evil one shows that our battle is not ultimately against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers and principalities that he might sift us like wheat. In Luke 3, John the Baptist spoke of the work of the Lord with a winnowing fork. That the work of the Lord was to have a winnowing fork on his threshing floor, putting the wheat into his barn. And that was a way of gathering the people of God. But what we find here in Luke 22, 31, is that while the Lord himself is gathering his people, Satan is diametrically opposed to his people. He wants to sift them and to discourage them and to separate them. Not only from Christ, but also from one another. He desires fractured lives. A united church loving Christ is a threat to all of his evil design. Behold, Satan demanded to have you. That he might sift you like wheat. The disciples need to be watchful and wakeful because their lives and our lives are in a context of spiritual warfare. We must not forget that. That's part of being wakeful. That's part of being watchful. The awareness, the abiding awareness that our lives are lived out in a context of spiritual warfare where our destruction is sought by an evil one. In Amos chapter 9, chapter nine verse 9, the Lord says, Behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among the nations with a sieve. But no pebble shall fall to the earth. I think that's another way of the Lord saying, I'm going to gather my people. The house of Israel, I will shake them like in a sieve. So that it will be clear who belongs to me and who doesn't. But Satan's designs to separate and to shake and to sift are evil designs. I said earlier that uh, these words of Jesus confirm that the disciples are unprepared for what's coming. The coming conflict and temptations that they're going to experience will lead them in some cases to make decisions they will regret. He wants to separate them from faithfulness to Christ and community with each other. When he says Simon, Simon, you might ask yourself, why is he addressing Peter if Satan desires to sift all of them? He could have very well said, now listen, everybody around the table, Satan demanded to have you all. He could have done it that way, but there, there is a gravity even upon a leader among the disciples like Peter. Such that you might think, if Peter could be taken down... There is a sense in which the rest of us who are following Peter and influenced by Peter, there might be vulnerabilities that we have not considered also. Peter needs to know this. Not only because the goal of destruction is against all the disciples and the designs of the evil one, but because of what Jesus says next to Peter. So one writer puts it this way. Because Simon is considered the leader of the twelve disciples, Jesus addresses him in particular. And in verse 34, we're going to find out that before the night is over, 
Peter himself will undergo a trial and express things. I did not know him. I don't know him. I'm not one of the disciples. Those kinds of denials which the other disciples are not reported as have said. Saying. And so in verse 32, here's Jesus' assurance. Jesus says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Now what you need to know here is, these yous are not plural. So by referencing Peter at the beginning, the goal was to always say something specifically to Peter. And Jesus is saying specifically to Peter here, I am praying for you. I don't think that means he's not praying for the disciples as a whole. Just read John 17. In John 17, Jesus gives a prayer on behalf of all of his disciples for them to be kept and guarded and preserved and all the disciples who would come afterward. But here, Peter is going to experience a test this night. And Jesus says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. A wrong way to read what's going to happen later in Luke 22 is that Jesus' prayer did not, that Jesus' prayer failed because Peter denies Christ. If we were to read this as saying, I prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and then we read the denials and we think, well, you know, so much for Jesus' intercession didn't prove very effective. Um, how, how effective most of the time is Jesus' intercession? And, and I think that would be a wrong way to understand the story. I think we should see that P- Peter does deny Christ. And what we read after the resurrection and throughout the book of Acts is demonstration that Jesus' prayer did not fail. This is, this is faithfulness in an ultimate sense. Even the wisest or strongest of those disciples can falter under difficulties. There there is a sense of recognition of vulnerability and weakness and genuine humanity that means none of us are invincible. What Jesus' intercession will demonstrate is that Peter is preserved through all of the sifting. Because while the enemy would desire to separate the disciples from Christ, and even Peter in particular, just read in the book of Acts. Peter proclaims and is committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. So a, a wrong way to read the denials of Peter uh, by Peter is that Jesus' prayer has failed. Instead, the restoration of Peter and the bold, courageous faith of Peter will demonstrate in the totality of Peter's life, Jesus' prayer does not fail. And we need the unfailing intercession of Jesus. And we praise God that we have it. He is at the throne interceding for and is the advocate For his people, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, just think about what that implies. If Peter's thinking, when I've turned again, where am I I going that I might turn again to you? When you have turned again, Jesus' own statement here is prayerfulness for the totality of Peter's life and faithfulness with a view to Peter's own weakness that will be felt very keenly in short order. When you have turned again. That must have sounded so strange to Peter. He's going to insist really strongly in verse 33, Jesus, you don't have anything to worry about with me. Maybe with these other guys. Not me. I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. When you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. This will be an important promise for Jesus to have said for Peter, for him to remember after the denials he's going to express. After all, what if Peter had thought, 
I have gone and denied Christ. There is no coming back from this. I mean, what if any of us who are professing disciples would look at a foolish decision and think to ourselves, this is it. There is no turning back from this. It is good, my dear friends, that Jesus said, and when you have turned again, because this is always the right day to turn to Jesus. No matter what, in previous days you would have thought, but this, and I have, and then I did, and then, but, so surely you need to hear the words of Jesus to Peter. Because Peter would be wrong to say, but Jesus, look at what I have done. Jesus would turn to his cross and say, behold what I have done. Do you think that covers everything but this, this particular thing, that this sin or this decision or this folly, that was simply too great for the atoning blood of the Son of God? Peter, when you have turned again. And that's so hope-giving as well for Peter to think on his life with those foolish decisions and what Jesus knew was going to happen. Because Jesus is not wrong. Peter will prove to be initially wrong. He's quite confident in his ability. And that's going to be demonstrated as just really shooting far too high. And when Peter is failing and does look back with grief and sorrow, he will remember Jesus' words that I have prayed for you. And when you're turning again, listen, friends, the prayer of Jesus is the only reason Peter turned again. His intercessory work does not fail. I think we need to notice here what's supposed to happen when Peter turned again. Strengthen your brothers. It may have been very difficult for the disciples to learn what Peter had done. I don't know if Peter is the one who ultimately divulged it to them or if it came up in other ways. But for Peter's failure to then be something the Lord uses in his perseverance... And further faithfulness to strengthen the brothers is an altogether striking thing. Because we might look in our lives and think, due to my failures and my weaknesses, how could I ever be used in the lives of others? But friends, behold Peter. Peter is told when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. They will need Peter's strength. Now this is probably going to surprise Peter. Especially in hindsight after the event. I have strength to give. It looks like when I recount what happened, I just have weaknesses. But see, the, the unfailing prayers of Jesus and the effective intercession of Jesus is how he uses Peter to strengthen others. We need to keep turning to Jesus because others are going to need the strength we provide. And Peter doesn't know it yet. You don't know it yet. But there will be people in your life counting on your perseverance. They need to see you keep going. They need to see you press through weakness and failure. They need to see you broken over your sin and sorrowful over what you have done and looking to Jesus. It will strengthen them. And away with this idea of saying, well, you know, uh, I I don't need to be anybody's strength. I'm just going to, the Lord needs to be their strength. Listen, friends, the way the Lord strengthens people is often through the lives of people he has providentially connected. Peter is not being told here, you know, the disciples are going to have to 
depend on your strength now, Peter. They can't depend on the Lord's strength. No, it's the Lord strengthening them through Peter. He's going to be strengthening them. One of the big reasons then that we keep going and we keep persevering and we keep turning from sin and we repent. One of the reasons we look to Jesus and we think on the cross and we take the elements of the Lord's Supper in remembrance of a new covenant established is because we keep going with knowing Christ has adopted us, reconciled us and secured us and others see persevering strength as well. They will be strengthened by it. So dear friend, you may feel quite weary this morning. And Peter would recognize very keenly and soon in this very chapter his own weakness and capacity to do things that are shocking. But others, before that story is finished, others will need the strength that Peter can provide. Think on the New Testament book of Acts. In the book of Acts, Peter is a leader among the disciples in the early church. This is the one who denied Christ. Peter is brought before authorities and arrested and jailed. This is the one who had denied Christ. I don't know him. And then he can't stop being committed to him in the book of Acts. He's proclaiming and preaching among the people in Jerusalem, even though the authorities demand that he not. Peter engages in mission activity according to Acts 12. He meets Paul according to Galatians 1 and 2. According to the book of the New, Test- uh, New Testament books of uh, Galatians and Acts and even his own letters, First and Second Peter, Peter has much strength to give. But listen, friends, it's not because Peter, in the end, turns out to be really, really awesome. It's because God is great and faithful and does not fail his people. So while Peter will fail... Christ will not fail. And it's not your faithfulness that's the ground of your assurance. It's the faithfulness of Christ that is the ground of your assurance and perseverance. We look to Christ. I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. When you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Verse 33, Peter He says, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. I don't want to fault Peter here. I don't think he's being hypocritical. I think he's being very sincere. I think he really believes in this moment. Jesus, when I've turned again, let me just tell you how committed I am. Now, we might not use the language prison and death. But this can be a a kind of cycle that we feel throughout our Christian lives from time to time. We can feel especially moved by the gatherings of God's people and sermons that direct us and wisdom. And we can be thinking to ourselves the same thing Peter is. Lord, I'm ready to go and I'm, I'm leaving this place. My devotion to you, white hot. I'm so zealous for you. And then we're upset at people on the road as we're driving home and... uh, and then uh, you might think to yourself, you know, I went to the store, I was looking for this thing, and they were out of it. And you just, you start thinking about uh, different circumstances in life. Oh, there's this, and there's that, and I'm frustrated here. And, and you realize, okay, I'm ready to go to prison and death like Peter, but all of a sudden, I'm also not as strong as I think I am. All of a sudden, I'm confronted with the realism of, of my own challenging sins. My own murmurings, my own failings, and my own weaknesses. And and, and this is the way for the Lord saying, I'm loving you, pursuing you, saving you, and preserving you. And it's not because you're so strong. 
It's because the strength of Christ and the grace of Christ and the glory of Christ is the end of all that God is doing in saving his people. So let's not fault Peter here. I think he's so sincere. I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. He recognizes there are challenges in Jesus' ministry right now. Religious authorities or Roman authorities might end up coming against Christ and Peter saying, I'm not going anywhere. You need a cellmate? Jesus, ask him for a room for two. I'll be with you, okay? Both in prison and in death. Peter just can't conceive that he would turn from Jesus. But friends... Peter doesn't know the future. In fact, you might be sitting here this morning thinking to yourself, I would never do that. But see, there are three problems with Peter's thinking here. Number one, Peter doesn't know the future. He's stating confidently about what he would always do. I'm with you to prison and to death. Number two, Peter's not valuing enough the authority of the one who made this prediction. It's Jesus. Does he think that in the end here, Jesus is going to be proven wrong and Peter proven right? Turning again. Jesus, I'm not turning. I'm not going anywhere. Though Jesus said it will happen, Peter's basically saying Jesus, maybe for Peter's saying Jesus, maybe for others, not for me. But is he really considering the words of the one speaking? He's not putting enough value on the authority of Christ here. And then thirdly, Peter is overestimating his own strength. He's not as strong as he thinks he is. I'm sure he really believed at that moment he would never deny Christ. No one's going to go to prison and death with Jesus having, thinking, having thought to themselves, but first I've got three denials to get out of the way. Prison and death after that for me though. I think J.C. Ryle is very profound in his commentary on Luke when he says, So little do we know how we shall act in any particular position until we are placed in it. There's far more wickedness, Ryle says, in our hearts than we know. We never can tell how far we might fall if once placed in a temptation. Ryle is right. He says, There is no degree of sin which the greatest saint may not run into if he's not held up by the grace of God, if he does not watch and pray the seeds of every wickedness, lie hidden in our hearts. Now, I don't know if you think Ryle is overstating the matter, but even if you would word it, dialing back some of the rhetoric, notice the strong point nevertheless. You and I are capable of things that can be shocking. Peter is overestimating his own strength. So after Peter's assurance of what he would, would be with Jesus all the way to prison and death... In verse 34, Jesus says, I tell you, Peter, the rooster won't crow this day until you've denied three times that you know me. You see, the one who knows Peter better than Peter is Jesus. And and I find this at the same time shocking and comforting. You are not the one who knows you best. Jesus knows you better than you know you. And yet Jesus loves you loves me, he loves us. He loves Peter. And while Peter doesn't know Peter as well as Jesus knows Peter, Peter is learning in verses 31 and 32 that Jesus is interceding for him and that Peter is going to get through this. You know what Jesus doesn't say? Peter, I know what you're going to do. I can't believe this. 
you're out. Get up from this table. Get out of this room. I can't believe you would be such a disappointment. I can't believe that when this is going to be presented to you, here is what you have done. Nor after the fact. Does Jesus say, you know, Peter, at the Last Supper, I wasn't going to bring this up. I knew this was going to happen. And I know you're coming to me. And I know you're back among us. And I know I've risen from the dead. Peter, there's no coming back from this. I'm sorry. You've made your bed. Lie in it. You just think about alternative ways, hypothetically, of imagining how conversations with someone might go. And Jesus, praying for Peter, loving Peter, and saying, when you've turned again, I'm going to use you, Peter. And even Peter's refusal to acknowledge this in verse 33, Jesus nonetheless is committed to his people. But it's not because his people have strength to match strength. His grace is greater than our faithfulness. And his mercy is greater than our sin. And that's why we have hope. I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Why a rooster? You know, the rooster or the crow is sometimes depicted in ancient literature as this very pompous and crowing king of the chicken coop. One writer puts it this way. As the strutting king of the chicken coop, the rooster is a proverbial example of foolish pride. And this sound of the crow will snap Peter to recognize he himself had spoken in foolishness. And so perhaps this is a way to consider the role of the animal here. I think that that commentator's uh, comment is wise. Until you deny three times that you know me. Jesus gives very specific examples, details, to confirm his own identity. Notice here, if Jesus says is just suspecting what Peter would do. You know, Peter, I'm looking at the lay of the land and the disciples, and I might imagine something happening here. Instead, Jesus speaks specifically to Peter and specifically lays out what's going to happen. He tells us who this is going to regard. Not just any of the 12, it's Peter. He tells us what is going to happen. Peter's going to deny knowing Jesus. He tells us how many times it's going to happen. It's going to happen three times. And he tells us when it's going to happen. Before the rooster crows this day. There's a, in that small line there in verse 34, there is further confirmation that Peter is not dealing with a merely human teacher who's concerned about a defecting student. This is the Lord of heaven and earth. This is the mighty Christ, the God among men. And he has come and with divine insight, he is penetrating Peter's own soul with telling him what is to come. Who it's going to be, it's Peter. What's going to happen? You will deny me. How many times it will be three and when it will happen before the rooster crows this day? One scholar says that if Satan can overcome Peter, he can overcome all the disciples. If Christ can preserve Peter from ruin, he can preserve all the disciples. And I think this is a good point to consider not only the wicked schemes of the evil one, but the surpassing keeping grace of God for his people. There is both sober warning and tremendous comfort and encouragement to be gleaned from this passage today because Satan desires to sift you all like wheat. He desires to separate you from one another. He desires to separate you from Christ. And you might sit here today thinking, that would never be me. But there may come a day, there there may have already come a day, when you think to yourselves as a professing Christian, I cannot believe I did this. There's no coming back from this. Friend, you need to hear Jesus' words to Peter. Today's the day to turn. Today's the day to come to him. 
He loves you. And he is the mighty intercessor. Robert Murray Machane said, I ought to study Christ as an intercessor. Because he prayed for Peter who was to be tempted. And if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet, the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. And he's praying for you. Hold on. Let's stand.